This is Pod of the Rings, a weekly reaction show dedicated to Amazon Prime Video's Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power, with your hosts, Simon A. and Jamie Wilson. Visit our website at www.shutup.world to uncover even more great content. And now, Pod of the Rings. Thanks for joining Jamie and me for Pod of the Rings, Season 1, Episode 4, The Great Wave. If our magniloquent song makes your rocks tingle, please subscribe and give us five of your finest stars. To all of you who've subscribed already, our gratitude overwhelmeth. For our other podcasts, visit our website shutup.world. Our Instagram is at Pod of the Rings. And please whisper yes. all sweet nothings to Pod of the Rings at gmail.com. All right, let's, let's get knocking. All right. I need to learn how to speak Elven. How do you say it? let's do it in Elven? <laughs> You're the expert. I, I don't know. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> say it without emotion. Um, cool. So we're in. Uh, this is we're episode. In. Hello. Hi, welcome to Pod of the Rings. Um, yeah, so we are in episode four and it's uh, called, what's it called? The Great Wave. The Great Wave. Yeah, um, I wondered whether it was the, did they mean like the wave at the start of the episode where it was crashing in and destroying the city or the wave that Muriel really wanted to give uh, Galadriel <laughs> as she sealed off for the first time in her <laughs> ship in that little tiny rowboat they gave her to get back to Middle Earth. I know she's standing up in the boat again. This must be something like elves do. I think you know, elves yeah. are those. There's those assholes who always stand on the bus, even when they're seats. You know, they kind of like stand. The elven yeah, they stand there awkwardly at the front. Like there's tons of seats. Every once in a while, That's they kind of so they kind of look at a seat and they're like, hmm. And <laughs> yeah, that's hilarious. So it opens up with Muriel's dream. Um, yeah, that's it. Why don't you start? Sure. So right. we, uh, where do you want me to start from? The dream. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, Queen Muriel has a dream about a uh, vision. So we later find out that she's having a nightmare about a vision that she saw through the vision stone. Um, and it's basically <laughs> a giant wave that destroys Numenor. This big yeah. giant wave comes and it crashes down. It's so powerful that a lot of the buildings start to crumble even before the wave reaches them. That's right. how powerful this wave is. So, in normal dream interpretation, that I would, in my 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 view, what I've learned over time, I guess, is that uh, this rising water is a, is a common dream trope, like in real life, um, like having water around your ankles or dirty water and all that yeah. stuff. And this is actually used as a theme. It comes up later when uh, Theo's in the well. Um, but basically, like it symbolizes like a, a an overwhelming emotion, right? When you yeah. during the day, if you get overwhelmingly angry, or oh yes, like okay. a, it's like a wave you... coming over you. Exactly right, yeah, because that's how the unconscious sees the emotion, like uncontrollable. Yeah, um, that like makes the, sense. Yeah, like like the ocean. Um, so, and then the other part of the trope is the end of the world trope, which you often yes. get in dreams. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that usually refers to the death of someone close to you, right? Ooh, Either okay. a fear of death or, um, uh, you know that kind of thing. But because yeah. the end of because the end of the world to the unconscious is the end of a person because a person is a world unto themselves, right? Oh yeah, okay, yeah, but yeah. In good. this case, now the baby, right? The baby is actually Galadriel, 
And it's also <laughs> no, the baby's Galadriel, and it's also okay. Numenor, right? I didn't notice it's curly hair. hair. <laughs> and uh, basically, cities also can symbolize relationships. So what's really going yeah. on here is that that uh, uh, Muriel is she's holding Numenor and the relationship of Numenor with the elves in her arms, right? It's in yes. her arms, yeah, and yeah. she's responsible. So she feels the weight of that responsibility, oh, and she's worried about the end of the war and the end of Numenor. Obviously, there's a literal element yeah, to it. Uh, yeah, yeah, well. yeah. So That's I like the, so interesting. Yeah, I like the layered features of the dream. Um, Definitely, that's really cool. The, the furthest I got with the dream was, isn't it weird that the Queen is having this weird naming ceremony for all these babies? Like, there must be more babies than that born every day. Like, she must spend her whole life naming life naming babies. Yeah, that's right. If they do that for every baby that's born. Well, this comes up later in the thing too. Um, but yeah, I, it was interesting. Yeah, it was a, it was a neat little ceremony. It was, um, and the graphics were great. And, you know, the other thing is that Muriel is holding the baby, you know, like holding Numenor. But as far as I'm aware, she's got a 39% drop average, um, which is pretty good. Um, it's a decent uh, baby drop average for monarchs. So I yeah. think uh, I think Numenor's in, in good hands. Yeah, drop babies are not good for the monarchy. Definitely Sorry. not. I stole that um, joke from kids in the hall, by the way. Oh, did you? Okay. Yeah, they I've have never watched it. They have Is a it doctor. Good? Yeah, it's hilarious. I love kids in the hall. I'm just discovering it for the first <laughs> time because I never watched it before because we grew up in the UK and it was a Canadian thing. But yeah, it yeah. is so funny. I'm pretty sure you watched that whenever you were a kid. Did you I watched kids that on in the Channel hall? 4. I'm pretty nah, sure it was on Channel 4. I don't Channel think I ever watched kids in the hall. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, um, at the same time as uh, she's recovering from her nightmare outside, there's a rebellion going on in the square. We've mm -hmm. got another lame chant delivered by these men just chanting Elf Lover over and over and over again. It's the, the most unimaginative protest songs these guys have. It's terrible. This guy's uh he's a Numenorian supremacist. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Complaining about the immigrants and uh all Stealing the Stealing their jobs. Yeah. Not just immigrants, these are immigrants that don't sleep and they don't get tired and they're really hard workers. Oh my god, we're so scared. I, it's such a like I'm getting a bit bored with this script now. Um, yeah. yeah, it's starting to get a bit old. I think these were the same things. Were these not the same things pretty much that were said whenever that guy was in the bar <laughs> yeah. and he got into the scrap? Yeah, totally. Um, he's uh, it's it's the whole immigration theme they're really playing up because it's contemporary, yeah. I think. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah. That but and then when the chancellor gets up to save the day and he buys everybody a drink at the end, it's like, come on, <laughs> it's ridiculous. That isn't how to win a crowd over drinks all round. It's so ridiculous. It, it is it a really, bit... yeah, almost offensive. It was it was actually odd that um, th th they there's like seems to be like a square or some space outside where they gather i guess and, yeah and who knows if these are the senior people the the hoi polloi of numenorian society but it just <laughs> yeah, seems a bit odd yeah. that he bought everyone in the square a drink but he, he wants to show himself as a man of the people he's basically i thought he's stirring up nationalist uh nationalist kind of uh uh what's the word for it fervor i guess um yeah uh and uh he so promises that, that um he promises that they can trust him that he'll make sure that the elves will never take over as rulers of Numenor again and yeah that's right I just He's... don't get it it's this whole yeah thing about politicians and that people are so easily bought that they'll will just buy them a drink 
you know and yeah. it was the same at the tavern again whenever the king got into that fight with the other guys he was like drinks all around drinks all yeah. me it's like come on apparently you can get a numenorian to do anything if you buy him a pint <laughs> i know it's it's most, the most ridiculous thing but it's like they're men they're saying these are humans so like you can get humans to do anything if you buy them a drink it's offensive this kind of, yeah okay yeah i mean we're getting a very mixed inter impression of humans for sure yeah. Um, and uh, I haven't fully made up my mind, um, you know, how cool yeah, it is. Yeah. But yeah, but yeah, I love <laughs> my 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 mute extra of the week was in the scene where um, Farzan is walking through the market with his son, uh, Kevin. Oh, yes, yeah. and at one point they stop in front of this stall, and there's this fruit. I think it's a fruit seller or something, just kind of standing there, and you know, like he's got this big smile on his face because he's schmoozing his Farzan. <laughs> but you know, he just he feels like he should be saying something. Yes, but I know. He's yeah, been told yeah. not to. <laughs> so he's like, mm. he looks yeah. just he's dying to get something out of his mouth oh, and just can't God. do it. If you do, if you rewatch the episode, look out for this guy. I'll have to <laughs> He's watch. hilarious. The look on his face is yeah. priceless. It's it's worth just going back to check it out. Yeah. Um, so Muriel. Yeah, um, his his son gets all flirty with um with the other captain's daughter. As yeah. well, that happens too in this scene, doesn't it? Yeah, so so uh, there's something going on with Farazon, I think, where he's being set up for conflict. He's like, he's trying to stir up uh, uh, sentiment yeah. uh, or build himself up as a man of the people, right? Uh, so I get the sense that he's got, he's a, he wants to lead, you know, he's not yeah, happy he playing second does. fiddle to Muriel. Yeah. And so there's something going on with Kemen and the setup with uh, with Aarian, who I apologize, I called her Aariel in the last episode. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, there's something going on there. It's all being set up for some form of conflict within Numenor yeah, and Isildur and Farazon and Muriel. Yeah. yeah, there definitely is. Um, he's getting awfully close to her. Um, and then we head back to the Queen and the Elf again. Yeah, Galadriel's vexing uh, uh, <laughs> yeah. Muriel. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah um, uh, this is where um, this is where the dream sort of comes into play. Whenever Galadriel says to 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 um, Muriel, "Look, I want to reforge the alliance, and I want you to stand with the elves against the sky." What she yeah. does there is she's putting the baby into Muriel's hands. Kind of, she's saying, "Look." You need to. This is the relationship that I'm asking you now to take care of. This is the thing, yeah. and uh, and see, uh, Muriel. She has said she has seen the vision. She thinks the gods have told her what's going to happen to Numenor. She says the people have chosen. Um, yeah. Again, this is going to the dem democratic sort of um, way of thinking of the humans. The people have chosen. She says Numenor chose to reject the elves. And so I'm not going to do anything to stand in their way. This is the decision they've made, and Numenor is going to die. And that's it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't know that she intends to, that Luminor will die. I think she's interpreted that that if um if she goes against popular opinion, then Luminor could die. So if she gets into bed with the elves, then Luminor could potentially die. No, that was maybe? my first thought. I don't know. That was my first thought, but it just didn't ring true to me. And uh, I know. see, I was I was really kind of in the first watch, I was a little uncomfortable with how quickly um Muriel backtracked. 
Yeah. You know, I was like, shouldn't this kind of change happen over a few episodes? Shouldn't there be some back and forth, some tension, some struggle? It was pretty quick for it to happen in one episode. Like here in this episode, she gets all pissed off and sends, at this point, she gets all pissed off and sends her to jail. That's right. So maybe then she's had a bit of a time to think about it. You know what I mean? But I just don't, um, yeah, I don't buy it. You're right. It's too big of a flip. Yeah, it was a bit of a it was a bit of a sun flip. But then the more I realized what um, Marielle's true intent was, the more I sort of understood it. She she was bitter against the Numenorians because they rejected her father, who wanted to be yeah. um, close to the elves. But she sees her as having a herself as having a democratic responsibility to the Numenorians, right? So if they reject the elves, then fair enough, um, we're going to honor true. her. But she is aware. I think I think the dream tells her that. But as a result of all this, Numenor is going to sink. Yeah, yeah, and uh, that's what she's like. Well, if that's what they want, uh, then let them fair have enough. it. Yep, <laughs> I just said, she's a queen, that's not how queens are supposed to be. Um, but yeah, so she doesn't want to go off and fight Sauron at this point. She sends the elf to jail, um, where she gets some advice from the king, and then she gets out of jail again. Yeah, she gets out of jail. Um, she beats up those guys and uh, yeah. runs and then off. The and the chancellor just lets her go. He's just like, "All right, then, see you later." I think he's probably <laughs> rightly terrified of Galadriel, probably for good reason. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I thought so. Yeah. Um, off she goes. Then she challenges Muriel up in the office. Uh, the the That's big right. uh, or not the office. The the chambers. Up in of the, the king. chambers. Yes, she realizes that the king's actually very sick. She thought that he was being hidden away or in, in captured in some way. Yeah. Um. But no, he's actually very sick. Yeah. I thought the whole Palantir scene was really cool. I loved the Palantir scene. Um, yeah, it was really good. There's a huge amount of symbolism, and it's a powerful story trope. Um, this idea of a, an all-seeing uh, object, like a crystal ball, you know, like uh, yeah. it features before Lord of the Rings, I think, in... Um, in the Wizard of Oz, it's a really old story trope of having a some sort of um, <clears throat> oh yeah, it's through which you... been around forever, hasn't it? Was it not in one of the grim fairy tales as well that one of the people had a crystal ball? And I don't know, maybe not. Yeah, but yeah, it's in loads of stuff. Yeah, um, it's a strong symbol of seeing the world in a particular way. So you know the way in uh, say the Goonies is a great example of it. You know, whenever uh, Mikey holds a doubloon up. And yes. he sees the lighthouse and the rock. Oh, yeah, okay. And the restaurant. And he says, see, that trope is in a lot of movies. And what it means is that it if you you get you get an object which is like a uh what's the word for it? Like a uh oh, there's a fucking perfect word for this. Um <laughs> a talisman or something that yeah. when it enable when you look through it, it changes things so it conceals some parts of the, what you can see so that other things are become visible. Are highlighted or, yes, exactly. okay. it's yeah, in yeah. A, it's in a lot of things. And uh, this is an example of it. It just, the Palantir is that kind of uh, object. But anyway, all that aside, it was cool scene. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was, it was really cool. And that's where we learned that it wasn't, it was a nightmare by the vision that she was having. It wasn't just a nightmare. Um, that's right. But yeah, that was pretty cool. Although I don't think Galadriel got the full Palantir experience. She seemed to just get a second or two um, yeah. versus the whole thing. And that's, again, where we learn that this is how, that this whole foretelling of what's going to happen is already in motion. It started with Galadriel's arrival in Numenor. Yeah. 
um, yeah. which is something else the the queen tells her. Gladriel just got the trailer cut uh, yeah. off the uh, <laughs> the vision. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then they had this big long conversation about the Val the Valarge and how they gifted the island and um, it was through virtue and everything else. Yeah, yeah. And the queen was pretty set that she wasn't going to change her path. Yeah. Um, even though that the virtue, like Gladriel Glad rightfully pointed out, that the virtue was because of their loyalty to the elves, and now they're going against it. It's like you got this place because of your loyalty to us, and now mm-hmm. you're going to use that as an excuse not to be loyal to us. You know, well, what I, I mean? mean, in the first the first time they were having their back and forth in the hall, um, you know, uh um Muriel totally called out Galadriel on exactly what we were saying last week. That Galadriel, yeah, she brings this um this elfin hierarchy with her. She says, "Oh, I'm Galadriel of the North, and blah blah blah. I, I speak That's for the right. uh, uh, and and uh, Muriel's like, look, you don't speak for the elves. You reject and and it's true. This is, I mean, Galadriel's a, away. Yeah. See, this is another example of Galadriel's uh, flirting with dishonesty. You know, she has <laughs> yeah. she has a mixed view view of herself. Like she oh, always misremembers sure. things. Like she, and now, now here she is touting her elvenness when she's actually rejected that. Yeah, and, and she was right. in a different path. You know what I mean. And so Galad- yeah. and so Muriel calls her out, which is really cool to see. And what was happening is like Galadriel was trying to boss Muriel, basically. And Muriel yeah. was like, "Step off, girl. <laughs> you know, this is my decision." Yeah. And it's only whenever yeah, yeah. she's standing in the boat, looking back, where I felt that a lot was communicated in that case. I really felt like the acting took a step up in this episode. Like, yeah, I think so too. Up until that point, she was looking down on Muriel, but when she looked back at her from the boat, there was a plea in her eyes that was like she started to look at Muriel as an equal. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And she maybe. humbled herself with her gaze, and that's what changed Muriel's mind. Oh, I don't know about that. She didn't change her mind until she was halfway back to the palace. Yeah. And all the leaves started to fall. All yeah. the all the she just lost her nerve. She just lost her nerve. She was all up really? for the whole thing being destroyed. And then it actually started to happen. She's like, fuck, I better try to fix this. You know? Um, but yeah, so where did we get to? Uh, I think that that almost wraps it up with uh, Gal and Muriel for that story arc for this episode. I did note the wind blowing through the tree. Like um, there was a huge, there's a couple of huge thematic elements going on in the in the background yeah. of the show here the wind which we'll see several times as well as whispering the wind and whispering is caught yes is, a, is all the way through this episode and uh yeah yeah, yeah i didn't think um the queen's logic stood up very well in her argument um and then i didn't think that she did a very convincing job whenever she was trying to muster her troops like she gave that big speech in the in the queen's um i can't remember the word that they used for it and whatever um, throne room or whatever she's in and um, mm-hmm. she tries to give this big leadership speech that uh, is supposed to galva it just didn't land for me you know it, it was just a bit weak compared to others that we've seen i there were a couple of moments in the show like that one and um where isildur who we're about to talk about next when he fucks up his friend's future by um, <laughs> yeah. letting go of the rope <laughs> i thought his friends could have been a bit more upset you know, oh my! They, they were God. they were upset, but like if someone just screwed your life over, you'd be like, "You ruined my fucking life!" <laughs> you know what I mean? I know. You'd be raging, and this guy was, um, not, yeah. But so I don't know. I think that's a strategy of the show, and I'm not sure whether it's done deliberately to build, um, so that they can build more drama into other scenes. If you know what I mean? I don't know. 
I just don't think that the writing's good enough. I honestly <laughs> just don't think that they're good enough writers. And that might be very, I don't know, maybe you're right, and we're going to get these huge, big, dramatic moments coming up, but it yeah. doesn't take much to write a good speech. You know what I mean? People write speeches all the time. That's what it is. It's speech writing. I agree. And I also felt like um, that also speaks to this part of the plot being uh, wrapped up too quickly. Like yeah, uh, we just didn't have quite enough time with Muriel and her people and Farazon and that relationship with Galadriel yeah. in order for this to have more import. It needed just oh, a bit more yes. time spent on it. That's um, it because we're not really connected well enough to the characters to feel that kind of, um, yeah. I guess, powerfulness. I feel we're definitely getting closer to that. Like I thought that for, there are weaknesses in the script in this episode, but I still think it was miles ahead of any oh, yeah. of the other episodes so far. Like this episode really took the show to another level. It's because the Harfoots weren't in it. So they had better writers. <laughs> <laughs> I, there's um, definitely something to this idea that certain characters seem to be more inspiring to the writers. Yeah. Elrond is a case in point. Elrond's script is fucking amazing. Oh, really good. I think he's the character that I feel most drawn to. I think yep. he's really good. I really, really, he's like my favorite character, I think, at the minute. Mm -hmm. Him and Gladriel. Gladriel's really good. Um, yep. But she has her weak points, you know, she has her, she definitely has her character flaws, whereas Elrond, I think, is great, really good. Yeah, I'm starting to love Galadriel as well, but but uh, I love her despite the, uh, yes. the, the slight uh, awkwardness yeah. of the script. Yeah, that it's for just, sure. There's just something that isn't quite right. And yeah. then they're, they're not going to sail for 10 days. Like, how long does it take to get a few men in a boat? You know what I mean? It's fucking 10 <laughs> days. Like, 10 days is a really long time. Why are they waiting so long? That's the other thing. It's like, why is it I 10 days? Maybe she's just got to pack all her things. She's got a lot of trunks. of. Uh... <laughs> she's one of these people that brings 10 suitcases on every, yeah. uh, every it's trip. It's like one, one ship of like men and a woman to fight and then nine ships of the queen's belongings. That's yeah, what they, it is. They need one boat just for the, just for the jewelry and... Uh... <laughs> And the, the shoes. That's no. terrible. That's terrible. <laughs> we're joking. That's, it's we're, so bad. We joking. have to edit that out. We no. cannot put that in. Um, but <laughs> I will say though that I loved like what's happening is that there's a, it's an interesting director direction style, right, from the director, and I've started to notice it more. I'm starting to get it more. Um, on the one hand, I would have liked to have seen a more modern style of directing where the camera moves around more. Yeah. you know and uh it's just a little bit more activity um yeah yeah but on the other hand i see what they're trying to do is they let the camera sit and they, we get a lot of face close-up face shots of people's faces and expressions yeah, that just stay on the face or the upper body certainly <laughs> yeah. and then it gives you time to look around and see like muriel's the detail uh, her headdress is captivating i've never noticed i'll have to definitely and pay more attention to that there's other elements of the scenes like the lantern, so that well. she, yeah, the lantern that she carries up is quite, and you can just tell that they have made that thing for the show, yeah. and it's an actual artifact. Yeah, yeah. And it's the the background is becoming much more vivid to me because, and that's why they do it. They want you to spend time looking at their faces and yeah. spend time looking at the scene, and so the camera doesn't move around very much. So I'm not sure. Uh, I like it, I think, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I can see how some viewers would be slightly put off by the slow the lack of movement. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. I'll have to watch out for it. I haven't really paid much attention to that, to be honest. Um, 
But yeah, so we're off to um, that scene ends out then. So they, she rallies the troops. They all start volunteering to go off. It was that kind of awkward moment where nobody was going to volunteur and then Estadel yeah. and his friends did or Estadel and his friends. Like, the extras are like, <laughs> are we supposed to say something now? Um, <laughs> I thought they told us not to say anything, but I feel like I should be... Uh... <laughs> should I put my hand up? <laughs> yeah. Uh... <laughs> I feel I should push the envelope of this character a little. Uh... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, Isildur, Isildur and his friends all volunteer, and lots of other people. Um, and yeah, and we're going to yeah. talk about Isildur next, aren't we? Yeah, I made a huge uh, boo boo in the last episode. By the way, um, I think it was the last episode when I said that Isildur was being called to from the mountains of Middle Earth. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I just have to retract that because people must think I'm a moron. Um, it, it was the it was the western mountains of Numenor that were calling to him. Oh, I guess okay. I guess the boat. I was thinking he's at sea, therefore he's looking east. But actually, he yeah. was to the west of Numenor, looking east at Numenor, which I, I didn't see. Put I together, that they were all up around Middle Earth too. Whenever they were in their boats, yeah. And and what what are they doing on the boats? By the way, as far as I'm aware, Numenor hasn't been at war for a long time. Like, are these fishing vessels? Well, they're training. I don't know what they're training but for. Exactly. They're- they're definitely not fishing vessels, but just because you haven't been at war doesn't mean you don't have an army. Yeah, it's I don't know. It didn't quite make sense to me. Like it was the same yeah. when the dwarves were in under the mountain. The dwarves all wear their armor all the time. They're, I, uh... That's true. <laughs> that, I know. <laughs> actually, you're right. They're all fucking in armor. Yeah, it's like it's part of their bodies or something. They just can't take it off. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. Even though they haven't ostensibly been at war for as long as we can, I don't know. Maybe they have to fight the old creature in the in the caves or something. And... <laughs> yeah, but even their security that was like that time in um, Elrod was at the was overlooking from the bridge. Like those guys that walked past them were guards in full armor. Like they had face coverings on and everything. Mm-hmm. Like they weren't out in the mines. Like what's that all about? Anyway. Yeah, I know. Yeah, you know, it did make me realize something else. Actually, I'll just try to say quickly in passing that. I also reflected on how way back in the history, um, the elves first were called to fight against uh, Sauron or or Morgoth, yeah. actually Morgoth, after Morgoth took the light from the trees and everything. And I just wondered why the elves were ready for war. If they had never been at war before, how did they suddenly know how to fight? Did they yeah. spend hundreds of years training? Why did they have armor? Why did they have swords? Or was it all thrown together hastily? Bows and arrows, yeah. At, at the minute, right? So, but then I thought, well, maybe the elves are just born like this, you know? Like the elves, like Galadriel, uh, they're born with native talent to fight right, and okay. to, you see what I mean? They come into the world created that way. They yeah. don't, they didn't, they don't evolve or anything, whereas humans have to work for everything. And I think that that was what was being sort of said on the undertone of this. Uh, it wasn't, it didn't come across well because the guy was like, oh, they're stealing our trades. Uh, but <laughs> the, the under, the underlying message there is that humans are bitter against elves because humans have to work for everything that they have, whereas elves, elves are born don't. with everything. Yeah. Do you think though? Do you think? I think so. I think elves are just naturally talented. They don't have to strive to be good warriors like Arendir and, yeah. and Galadriel are. They just sort of have this innate, these innate know, abilities. Like when Elrond you know can, more about it than me. I I don't actually. I'm just guessing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But anyway, um, but they do start out as kids, and they, it just takes them a very long time to grow up. So they've got to do something with all that time. Surely, you know, they can't just play <laughs> around. So. You know what I mean? 
Yeah, they're in classes all the time. The parents are like hardcore <laughs> fucking pushing the kids to achieve. Yeah, they're at school for like 200 years and uh-huh. <laughs> six days a week. Um, yeah, no yeah. video games on the weekends for elves. Oh my uh, God. 20 minutes screen time in the morning. That's it. <laughs> but hey, um, what? sorry, what I did notice here was that on the subject of the whisper, the whisper from the West, the Western Hills, it sounds to me like a female voice. Yeah, and I wonder if it is something to do with Isildur's mother. Okay, yeah. Um, She's dead, isn't she? Yes. And there's this feeling of, there's a strong theme of parenthood going throughout this episode. Yeah. Um, and particularly with fathers, fathers is the most prominent part of the theme. But there's also the idea, this, there's mothers, you know, Muriel um, and yeah. the babies. And, uh, and it makes us wonder where is Isildur's mother and what's the voice coming from the the mountains? Yeah, that's interesting. That's interesting. Yeah. So he's distracted by the whispers and um, gets them all sacked, basically. Mm -hmm. So he fucks up with the ropes and they all get fired from their (laughs) training. They get sacked. They're no longer cadets anymore. Um, And then his friends get a bit angry with him, as you said, but not really that angry. They were just a bit (laughs) angry. It's another back streets. It's another scuffle in the back in the main streets of uh, Numenor. Uh, <laughs> I know, I know. As Isildur is, there's a visual theme which I think I mentioned in the last episode of nets and uh, nets like and uh, the crisscrossing imagery. Yeah, um, which is like ribs and nets, like the boats and the nets and the and uh, all the rest of it and. Uh, the nets that the Harfits used to trap things and that the stranger gets trapped. Yeah. So this nets are everywhere. And just above Isildur's head, when he's wrestling with his buddies there, is there's, there's an awning and it's got this crisscross pattern in it. And I thought this is about Isildur's being his entrapment into history. You know, like Isildur self-sabotaged yes. his uh, experience on the boat. And in doing that, he also sabotaged his friends' his mates. careers. Yeah. And, you know, Isildur is going to have a, a hard fall later in life right and so there's a hidden message in there about uh isildur and his Harma. tendency to self-harm yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> um but yeah so they get into a bit of a fight later on we see him telling his sister about it his sister tells him about having um dinner with your man um with Kamen, yeah and then they all volunteer to go off to war and that's the end of their story arc for this episode yeah Pretty That's much. it. Pretty much. Um, yeah. Um, without wanting to say too much more about it, I just felt that Isildur now has a sister. He has yeah. these buddies, and I, I kind of feel like he just needed some people around him so that we yeah. could get to know him. You know what I mean? Yes. Yeah. And also, this area in uh, Kemen is part of the setup for the conflict that's going to happen among the Numenorians. Definitely. There's yeah. definitely something coming there. It was kind of like a, it felt like a bit of a Lord of the Rings moment whenever um, Frodo is joined by the, his little two Frodo friends. What are they called? Sorry. Fucking that's Pippen. terrible. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it felt very similar to that. So now we've got um, him, whatever his name is. <laughs> Isildur. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we've got Isildur who's now being joined by two of his friends as they all head off to war together. Are we going to get a similar kind of trio with a few tagalongs? Mm-hmm. Um, is that going to be one of the, how the story arc there develops? Um, yep. Speaking about war, we head off then to join the orcs and the elves. So um, Arandir is meeting Adar. Adar. 
Yeah, I mean, I felt, I think that, you know, this scene in particular, so much in this episode, but this scene, I think, just raises the game for this uh, this story. Like, uh, so too. yeah, like Adar is genuinely menacing figure. Yeah, like, he's he, really good. His entrance, his, it felt like a Star Wars villain, you know, I sort of like it was very yes. um, Darth Vader-y, Kylo Ren-y kind of. Uh, yes. Very uh, cinematic. Yeah, very Sith-like guy. And uh, yeah, yeah, for sure, like really enjoyed it. Yeah. And um, wow, this guy can act. Like I felt, maybe I was in an altered state. I don't know. But I felt when I was watching this guy. <laughs> and he, so first of all, the thing to point out is I've got a couple of things, notes here. The death of his orc was um, a shadow scene of Muriel holding the baby. The orc is his child. They call him father. And we see oh, here, just we see some fatherhood in this episode. Like later, it's Durin and his dad. We see a father who really loved his creation, his child. Yes. And he guides him into the next world. And in that moment, he has like love, affection, pride, sadness. Also a bit of pleasure, I thought. <laughs> when he stuck that yeah. knife in. And then remorse. I mean, yeah. he wore so many expressions on his face in just a really? few moments. Oh, I'll yeah. Have watch, to rewatch that just scene. watch it again and see it. It's like... It's so good. Like, well For done. For me, I was like, what is this filler all about? Why did he have to kill that guy? Like, come on, what is this? <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to watch it back again. Well, he, yeah. draw, he draws attention to it. He asks Arendir where he was born. So it's another reference to being born. I know. Well, that's you know? true. And now that you say that about him being the father of the orcs, are we being set up with um, Queen, the Queen Muriel being the mother of Numenor and mm -hmm. now we've got the father of the orcs versus the mother of Numenor and yeah. it's going to be exciting. It's Maybe really they'll get together yeah. and they'll have little human orc um, halfling soon. Yeah. So all next thing I want to say about this guy is that two of my theories so far were completely borne out and verified in this scene. So yeah. my one of my theories is that the characters, that the earth itself and the land is a part of the characters. Right. Okay. And here he says, you were told many lies. Some run so deep that even the rocks and roots now believe them. Yes, that's the, right. Directly implicating the, the land itself into the thing. And, you know, the great thing about this is actually I love how they're doing this because what they're doing is and they're good at it in some respects and not very good at it in others. They are bringing a fantasy world to life. This isn't a real world like yeah. in fantasy and science fiction. It's even more true. Like you remember in Better Call Saul, I know, and you know, we don't want to delve too much into the Saul Rewind, but we did comment yeah. on how the characters tend to drive the creation of the world. That's right. But it's even more true in sci-fi and fantasy this, where, it, yeah. yeah, and that's what it actually is. Is like it's the world we're watching is a different sort of metaphysical reality where it's governed by yeah. by uh, uh, conscious creatures, not by physical that's forces so true and that would explain why the elven tree leaving it's losing its petals at the end of the episode why that was so motive for the queen because it isn't just that the, the flowers are losing their petals it's like this conscious being the tree is 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 showing its disdain for what's happening that is um, exactly the right that she's making that is exactly it and exactly a, a very similar thing happens whenever disa yeah. is singing to the mountain and the yes mountain. that's right that's right. Yes, yeah. that was a great moment. Um, so my other verified theory is that Sauron wants a new a, a new world. You remember I said yes, in the last, and right. I explained, and here it is, right here. He actually says he said to untangle it all. To untangle it would all but require the creation of a new world. But that is something only the gods can do. And 
I am not a god, at least not yet. So <laughs> the big question here is, and everyone's speculating, is this Sauron or not? Yeah. What do you think? I have an idea. I don't think this is Sauron. I don't think it is Sauron, no. I agree. I don't think he's Sauron either. And the main reason why I don't think it is because I got a very Gollum vibe from this guy. Yeah, okay. His very pale features. You know the way that Gollum... Yeah. Gollum is like a halfling, a hobbit, who's been stripped of life. He's had yeah. everything sucked out of him, and all that remains is a desire for the ring. Yes, This guy right. has a very similar pallor. He's been... He looks drained of life. Yeah, he's it's been like, transformed by his influence, by Sauron's influence, transforms things. Exactly. See, he has the appearance of an elf, but he's been alive for a long time. And whenever I remember that, I love that line that Bilbo says in The Hobbit, where he says, that I'm like, I'm like, not enough butter over too much toast. He'd been alive for too long <laughs> and he was thin. He was getting thin <laughs> yeah. and stretched yeah, out. Yeah. And that's what this guy's like. His face is covered in the cuts and mutilations of a long, yeah. violent life. You know, sure. he's... I, feel I got he's the got... impression that he was an elf because he spoke about yeah. being to the same place, being in the same places that um, that uh, the other elf grew up in. That's right. But Iron Deer said, "Yeah, I remember that." That's it. But Iron Deer seems to have never seen anything like this before. You know. Um, but yeah, are you sure he isn't surprised just because he is? He is clearly an elf that has been transformed in some way. And yeah. that's why Iron Deer looks so surprised. He's just so transfixed by it. He's like, holy fucking shit, I can't believe the orcs are being led by this elf. That's right. And he says, what are you? But I think you're right. Yeah. He must know that he's an elf, but yet he's so radically different from an elf that it's hard for Iron Deer. He's got cognitive dissonance. You know, he he he's saying an elf, but it's not yeah. an elf, right? I mean, that's the it. way the guy wears all those emotions when the orc dies, that is not something oh, yeah. you typically see on an elven face. This is a very Definitely different, uh, yeah, totally different. Definitely yeah. not. Um, but I feel like this yeah. guy this guy has an attachment to something. Like his golem-like pallor is because he's attached to something like the ring or to Sauron somehow. Yeah. And that's why he's in this state. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, so he sends Aaron Deer off with a message for the humans. Um, and then we rejoin, we join the humans, don't we? We join the humans in the tower. Yeah. Um, so um this would be a good time now that we're talking about potatoes in the watchtower. Um yes. I've had a great idea for a competition. Okay. And I think we should run this fan contest for the whole show. Okay, what is it? Basically, I've had an idea for a tune about potatoes. <laughs> do you remember? Um, do you remember Sam Gamji in Lord of the Rings? Like potatoes, you know, yes. he's explaining to Gollum about potato, potatoes, you know, frying, <laughs> you know, all this. Yeah. So I want to do a potato song contest. Okay. Where it will run. Listen, let's run this potato song contest for the entire five seasons. And um, what's the prize? The prize. Um, it has to be something potato related. Maybe a Sam Gamgee. Maybe a signed Sam Gamgee. Uh, signed by us, not by friggin' uh, whatever what, his name. What's is. his face, Mikey from the Goonies? Um, yeah, like a a statue or something like that, holding potatoes. <laughs> now I am going to. I am going to. What just, if it doesn't exist? I'm going to write my potato statue. We'll, we'll get it made. We'll get it made. Uh, <laughs> I have so, a great see. I have a great idea for a song. I can't win though because I'm obviously a judge, the organizer. Yeah, 
<laughs> Shit. Does that like put a <laughs> pin in your balloon? You uh, just realized that you can't be the winner. No, it's all right. I don't mind. I I I can't wait do to see. Do you want uh, listeners to write potato songs? Yes, I do. That just might be abstract enough that somebody tries to I write bet. a potato song. It's the potato what song contest. We've already we already know about the birdside potato waffle song, so you can't submit <laughs> that as your entry. <laughs> yeah, no, you can't. No. Uh, all right then. So right. send us your potato songs. Yes. Let's Are do there it. any rules? What's the minimum length that you're going to accept? I don't think we should have too strict rules. Actually, I think poetry should also be submitted. I think uh, if you're a poet, <laughs> I think you could uh, give us a poem. Send us, send us your potato <laughs> poems. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is going to be. You shouldn't be microdosing this early in the morning. I didn't touch it. <laughs> I didn't touch it. I swear to God, I'm sober. Okay. <laughs> All right. Send us your potato poetry, your ode to spuds. Yeah. But yes, anyway, so they're rationing the spuds and uh, Theo, aka, yes. he's the most Harry Potter like character of the entire show. I, I get he serious is. Harry Potter vibes from this guy. Um, he is. He's fun. I like <laughs> Theo. Um, he decides he's going to go off into the village to read a few of the um, houses to, to gather up some fruit and veg or whatever. Um, his mum hates the idea, but he goes off anyway. And true, in true mother, mother, son, father, son, rebelliousness, off he goes with his mate. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I like the way that the old guy who makes the Sauron comment in a minute he he gives Theo a sideways look there. Whenever Theo decides he's going to go off, I think that the old guy recognizes something in Theo. I think he may yeah. recognize leadership qualities or kind of strength. He already suspects that Theo <laughs> took his his. He just uh, knows that Theo's the thief that stole his. <laughs> he does. He does yeah. know. I think he knows that, and he's eyeing him with suspicion. But I think it's more than that. Yeah. He's looking at Theo as something more than just a, a dirty kid in his camp. <laughs> He sees something that other people aren't seeing in Theo. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe you're right. Um, but yeah, Theo goes off. Of course, one one wheelbarrow full of fruit and veg or whatever it is isn't enough. He wants to go and read the tavern too, and he gets himself into a bit of bother um, with one of the orcs. His friend runs off. Yeah, and yeah, he gets he gets into a bit of mischief, and um, yeah, realizes that the the whatever it is, what's it called? The uh the sword hilt you mean the hilt that's hilt. what it is yeah. I'd lost the word hilt is actually will turn into a smoky sword that you can use as a weapon yeah that's right so um yeah uh so I thought that from the minute he gets into the into the um the building the the place there's a few notes I have on this so the first note is yeah. that um when he the grains on the floor okay the grains on yeah. the floor. When he drops the grains, it re it remembers uh, very closely the opening credits where we see the okay. um, what appears to be um, beads of gold um, jostling jostling around on a black surface and being yeah. jostled around into the shape of rings. Yes, that's right. And the last ring we see in the credits is actually a hole. When the no way. when the gold. Mag when the gold is drawn to it, it and goes into it, it falls into it and it disappears into the darkness. I've never noticed that. Yeah, the last I've ring. I've never noticed it. Now in this scene, there are black holes. Now remember in Saw Rewind, if people want to get all the black hole stuff um, and the symbolism <laughs> of that, go watch yeah. our episodes on Nacho in yeah. Saw Rewind. 
listen yeah, to our episode, yeah. I should say, because this is the black hole imagery coming up again in this show that we saw in Better Call Saul. And sure. it's being associated here with Cleo in the background of Theo, sorry, in that room, there, there are barrels and the, the fronts of the barrels are dark circles like black yes. that resemble this and the greens on the floor. So this all brings us back to the opening credits and the ring. And I oh think my this goodness. is a secret whisper that Theo is a future king who will wear one of the rings. No way. Yeah, this is what's being no communicated way. to us. Yeah, here, all right, okay. I'm gonna write that down. What season do you reckon it's gonna be in? I don't know, but and I also it's it's <laughs> kind of confusing the time frame they're trying to cover. Like, think about it, right? There are three rings for elven kings, so we have to identify three elven kings who will oh, wear yes, the rings. Of course. There are seven okay. for dwarf lords, so there have to be seven dwarf lords each to wear a ring, and okay. there have to be nine for men. So nine yes, okay. kings of men, nine I, humans. Yeah, I also think they may. Um, so the wording of the quote is three for elven kings in their, I forget what it is, seven for dwarf lords and nine for men. But I think the word men is going to be interpreted loosely and we may see a queen wearing a ring. Oh, yeah, we definitely. Will. And I think we may also see a female dwarf lord as well. Yeah, wearing I a ring. So the elven the quote already identifies kings, so it's not clear if they can bend that one around to having a female leader, but I it, reckon they could. Maybe, maybe. Yeah, I have They've another. already bent so much. Come on. Yeah. Let's not get into all that. Yeah, I know, I know. Speculation. Anyway, yeah. Theo, the whole scene where he's running. So I have a theory about Theo, right? Yeah. Theo's another character who we don't know who his mother is, but did you notice how good he is at hiding? I thought the Bronwyn's his mother. Oh, mother. Yeah, sorry. I mean, father. Yes. So, so as Theo is hiding, I thought, this guy has some great... He can hide like a hobbit. Yeah, he really can. I wonder if his father is a Harfoot. Because we already know that Bronwyn has a taste for the forbidden fruit. Um, <laughs> she, she had an encounter with a tall, straw-hatted stranger. The stranger wasn't tall. The hat was tall. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't know enough about Harfits and humans to. Can they procreate? I don't know. I'm joking, though. I don't really think that. I actually thought, you know, in all honesty, in all seriousness, the score also in this, the musical score took a huge step forward in this episode as well. Like the musical score underlying this whole escape sequence was just fantastic. It was so dramatic. It was so. Um, you could you could really hear the musicality of it, which you can't often detect in the music in the, in the previous shows. Um, and, uh, you know, the whole, the way the whole scene was put together with him running around and dodging the orcs and then Arendir appears and it's so dramatic. Whenever Arendir appears, it's just brilliant, you know, to the rescue, perfectly timed, very tense. Um, yeah, and they head off. They head off ac across the countryside. Yeah. Um, and meet mummy in the woods. So back at the castle, the mother finds out that he's gone and she goes after him and they all meet together in the woods. Yeah. Um, I know I mentioned it earlier, but uh, whenever Theo was down the well there, that was the reference to the dark, dirty water oh, that yes, rises up around right. you. <clears throat> that's another part of the dream symbolism. That's and right. You remember we saw Nacho in the black fluid and he was getting a baptism in death, so to speak. Yeah. Well, what we're seeing here is a foreshadowing of Theo's baptism you know um and the Aye, dark the okay. whole the whole represented by the black dark water again yeah. calls back to the whole uh or the the missing part of the ring you know the the dark yes. center of it 
okay, yeah. especially whenever he ducks down to hide. Whenever he's in the well, he has to go under the water to hide, and he's fully submerged. Then, like a baptism, you're right. It's mm-hmm. it's the same. Yep. So they meet up in the woods. So we get to uh, Mummy is found out. Bronwyn has found out that he's missing. They all meet together in the woods. Um, just as Theo falls over and needs a hand, and then they run into the clearing just as the sun comes out. Very serendipitous um, that that was timed so perfectly with the sunrise that um, it comes to save them from that work <laughs> army. Yeah, but very, sure. very tropey. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I thought so. Whenever we see the what they're doing here is sh- the camera technology, the new camera technology that can slow down a scene like this and capture, still capture incredible detail um, is being showed off. They're really making use of the technology. Now, when they did it with um, Galadriel on the horse, uh, it was very jarring to me. I didn't uh, feel like the transition was, it was too much for me for Galadriel's character. But here yeah. I thought they really used it to great effect. This was fantastic. The slow motion shots of the orcs and the an iron deer you know iron deer you know you can see his the arrows and yeah oh yeah fantastic and when he shoots really an arrow you can see his actual cheek quivers in slow motion yeah yeah and when bronwyn <laughs> runs through the forest her chest quivers as she's running through the forest and uh no comment <laughs> i'm joking i know joking um yeah, so, but anyway, no, all seriousness, though, um, I thought this was fantastic, didn't you? Yeah, so I thought that was a brilliant scene, too. Um, very serendipitous, but it was a nice dramatic moment, wasn't it? That they all get rescued and the dwarves leave them at the edge of the forest. Um, and then, of course, we cut to um, two people getting messages. So Iron Deer is delivering a message to Bronwyn about how the orcs are on their way and she has a decision to make about whether to sacrifice um, her people or um, not sacrifice her people, but go off and be enslaved by the orcs and all live or potentially all die if they try to defend the castle against them. Yeah. Um, and then at the same time, Adar is being given a message by the orcs to say that his hilt is in the castle, the thing that they've been looking for this whole time. Yeah, that's right. And uh, this could be the thing that he's suffering from such terrible attachment to because it, it was one of Sauron's items in the same way that um, yeah, that's uh, it. Gollum was so attached to the ring. Um, yeah, it was all together, a really well put together um, sequence. Yeah, I thought it was really good. Yeah, definitely, definitely really good. And from there, we head off to the elf and the dwarves. And the, well, first of all, it's the elf and the architect, isn't it? Yeah, it's uh it's a uh, Kerbrimbor or Serbrimbor. I've heard it pronounced both ways in different podcasts. Yeah. And Elrond. That's um, it. Yeah. God, they've made such good progress on their tower. I swear to God, it's like, coming it's giant along. already. Yeah. Like how much time has passed? A couple of days. Look at the size of the thing. The dwarves have some abilities. Let me tell you. I swear to God, a little yeah. bit of suspension of disbelief. I didn't. I didn't really buy it. I thought it was a bit bullshitty. Um, but yeah, so the <laughs> the tower has been quickly built and. Um, the architect is starting to feed um, Ellen Deer some real bullshit about his dad. I get the sense that this architect is being very manipulative in these scenes. Yeah, I felt that as well. But he, I mean, he his acting of acting was really good. Um, yeah, it was brilliant. Yeah, and uh, Elrond was certainly seemed to be taken in by it. Elrond, I do have a slight feeling that Elrond can be a little naive. Um, yeah. Either that or Elrond is actually... He is aware of what Kerbrimbor and Gil-Galad are doing. 
Maybe. Yeah. I don't know. Do you not just think that he's just too lovely and he just wants to be see the best in everybody? <laughs> but that's the thing. I think that's the part of it is that he's... Elrond shows us... Um, you see, there's a strong theme in the hero archetype of failure to adapt. This yeah. is something I'm really acutely aware of because I suffer from this in life, right? This is... Uh, it's the hero um, finds himself in a situation, and we see it with Nori, uh, Isildur, um, uh, uh, Theo, um, who else? Galadriel, uh, Halbrand. Yeah, yeah. The theme is of someone who can't adapt to the ordinary life of their people, and they strive to get away. Right? Yeah, yeah. But they're striving. To to get away is not just because they want to go on an adventure it's because they see problems they don't they don't just accept life the way the harfits do you yeah. know the harfits just accept life they're they're more yeah. one with life in that respect they're not they're rebel quite passive about it exactly they don't rebel against the natural order of things but the hero just has to do that they can't adapt and so off they go to try to fix the world. <laughs> yeah, right. For sure. And in doing so, they kind of create a magical world for us to participate with them in. Yeah, right? definitely. And I don't know how I got onto that. Either did I. <laughs> I was like, where's this thing from? About? <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Oh, it, it was Elrond. Elrond. Right. I Whereas, keep calling him Elendir. He's Elendir. Is anybody Elendir? He's yeah. He's uh, no. You're um. This is um. Uh, uh, El uh, <laughs> Elendil. is Isildur's father. Okay, so this is Elrond. This is Elrond. Now Elrond, on the other hand, is supremely adaptive. You yeah, see, he he's is. got that capacity to adapt and to shift his um to sh to and, and also to correct himself when he when he's he's gone wrong and so yeah. he's adaptive he he is probably very well mixed in with Carabrimbor and Gilgalad as well as yeah. being able to adapt himself to a different relationship with Durin and so far he doesn't perceive a conflict in those two things but i think we're building towards a horrible conflict for Elrond Oh yeah, we definitely are with the dwarves and everything else. Yeah. Well, in this in this episode, the architect tips Elrond off that um the the dwarf is potentially hiding something, that either That's he's right. hiding something or um he's avoiding him, and he goes off to investigate mm -hmm. what's happening. Um, and then of course he discovers that the the dwarf is, and he's avoiding Elrond too. He gets his wife to make all kind of all kind of all kinds of excuses. Mm -hmm. um, yes. Um, there are some lovely notes from this entire sequence from when Elrond um, arrives with Disa to the point where um, he uh, is he exits and Durin has an audience with his father. So um, do you have any comments before I start my tirade? No, go for <laughs> it. So first of all, one of my theories is born. No, I'll get to that in a minute. Another one of my theories is born out. But anyway, um, the whole sequence with uh, Disa was just absolutely fantastic he i thought it was really good too. he can tell that she's fibbing but she yeah, also does a yeah. great performance of covering it up she, and she has it she has a really key line here she says um the the new ore isn't chiseled from the rock it's pride which is why <laughs> yeah. now yeah. this idea of prying has been going on in the show since the beginning the first thing that was pried open was the snail that that uh, Nori gave to 
when Nori was prying open the snails to eat the snails. We saw oh, it yes, again. That's right. We saw it again in Numenor when Halbrand pried open the um the uh the the thing, the clam for the yep. big fat juicy clam meat. Oh yes, that's right, yeah. Yep. And here we're having another reference to prying and the thing being pried from the rock. And it's uh it's it's very clever. You see, this is where the script is elevated. The script is really good at weaving in these clever parts, but yeah, it, it looks so a little lacking in other things. But but this is the kind of thing. So pride from the rock is the um, what we find out is Mithril, and then in the background, hilariously, we hear that um, Durin's daughter is punching the crap out of his son. Um, so there's a, <laughs> a strong yeah. woman sense going on here with uh, yeah, with Disa yeah, as well. Yeah. And uh, yeah, um, um, so yeah, he thinks he's Rumbledore. He doesn't buy it. Yeah, she goes off to tell um, the prince that uh, she's done a great job, and of course, Elrond has followed and has this perfect vantage point overlooking them as they speak, which is another kind of suspension of disbelief that he was able to follow and has found himself on this excellent lookout from the bridge above, um, and overhears them talk about you know what they're up to and um learns that they're mining in the old mine again that they've opened up the old mine mm -hmm. ah yeah this was just a lovely touch you know and it happened a few times in this episode where we're getting more transported into a magical world and the el yeah. and the, the elves are starting to see more elvy to me and less human looking mm -hmm. and the dwarves obviously haven't really looked like human at all since the beginning yeah. and um you know, this is one of Elrond's special abilities. He reads the lips and listens. He can hear the, <laughs> yeah. whisper, the whisper. He hears easy. them from yes. that distance. Yeah, exactly. So special ability of the elves being shown. And also it was it's, really good. Yes. Yeah, also, it's a whisper. You see the whisper of Disa. Then when he goes down into the caverns, he hears the wind under the door. Yes. And it brings us back to the wind blowing through the tree in Numenor. And it's like yeah. you're saying, that wind blowing through the tree was the voice of the land. Yeah. And this yeah, is yeah, the breath yeah. of the mountain. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Okay. Very you good. See? Yes. All these things are alive. That's right. Exactly. Again, he seems to know the secret knock to get into the old mine. He has to give it a good old tap and the door opens, open sesame, and then he goes. Um, again, yep. it's like, how does he know all this stuff? Maybe just because he's been friends with the dwarf. You see, I didn't. I missed it on the first watch. Actually, I only got it on the third watch, but he heard the rhyme. The kids were chanting the rhyme when he was up there with Disa. No way. Yeah, the little girl says, no way. she says, we're playing the knocking game. Um, and it goes, uh, uh, rich crone, kiss the stone, polish your gems and rock. And he remembered. <laughs> yeah. I'm definitely going to have to pay more attention whenever I watch this. That's really well, clever that they wrote that into the script. It, well, like, was, that's really good. To... It took me three times to get that. Yeah, um, but also yeah, yeah. note that another one of my theories was verified here. You remember that I said that the dwarves digging down into the earth was them going deeper into the reflection? Yes. Well, that reflection, when, El when Elrond says, oh, it's Mirror Mirror, they're under mirror mirror and he's talking oh, about yes. i don't know if it's one of the hey. underground rivers i'm not exactly sure what, what mirror mirror is but that's where the cavern is he identifies it yes. and it's so the mirror is directly referenced oh that's funny reflection and later Dern says to elrond you wouldn't he says he's <laughs> the funniest line in the show so far he says to he's Dern says to elrond you wouldn't remember your face if you were gazing in a mirror 
That was a really funny moment. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, he heads on in. The dwarf finds him, gets all angry that he's being spied on and followed about. Um, but then Elrond talks him into spilling his guts and telling him all his secrets. Yeah. There's an echoing going on, I think, with um, Elrond and Galadriel. Like in the in the scene with uh, Galadriel and, Mur- and uh, Muriel, remember I said that it was as if Galadriel had placed the baby into... Um, Muriel's yeah. hands and the baby was the relationship with Numenor and the elves and the Numenor itself. Well, here, yeah. Durin places the mithril into Elrond's hands and That's Elrond right. is holding the baby in his hands, you see. Oh, and oh, yeah, he okay. names the baby. What does he name it? Mithril. Mithril. Yes. Right. You see, the dwarf doesn't get the name quite right as he translates it into Elven, and then oh, he, and then Elves right. says, "No, no, it would be Mithril." So, so the naming of the baby is being echoed back from the Muriel yes, thing. Yes, okay, very good, mm-hmm. uh, very good. But what does it mean? What does, what does it, it all mean? mean? What does it all mean? Oh my goodness! Um, and then there's a big caving. Dun dun dun. Yeah. So yeah, there's a big caving. Durin rushes in to see of the elves, and then uh, we find. Uh, Disa yeah. is now. Then we are transported. I can't. I, I can't remember what the cut is, but we were so well transported into Disa's song, in the cavern. And that's was, right. It was really good. Uh, that was a really great moment. It really, truly was. Yeah. Um, all the rocks started to move around, or certain, not all of them, but certain rocks started to move around. Yeah. And she explained that she was asking the mountains to release um, the dwarves with air left in their bodies or breath left mm-hmm. in their bodies. And yeah, it was really good. I really liked that moment. It was brilliant. Yeah. It was brilliant. Yeah. And so the way the mountain reacts to her song is, and it also yeah. just reminded me on, a, on the second or third watch about Adar's comment. Adar said, the rock and roots are believing the lies. Yes. So yeah, yeah. There's a conflicting view over the nature of Middle Earth and the land itself. You know what yes. I mean? It's uh, very, yeah. very interesting that they're tying these things together. It is. It's fascinating in a way. Mm-hmm. All these little details that they're starting to add, and maybe they've been there the whole time and we were just too distracted by the per dialogue to notice. Mm-hmm. Dialogue to notice. You um, know, the other thing I noticed was that in the same way that. Um, the wind is like an outgoing breath of Iluvatar or whatever, the godlike figure. Uh, yeah. and the land is alive in a sense with the spirit, with that spirit. The mithril itself is also, it could be seen as God's voice also, that the mithril was put yeah, into the sure. earth. The shimmering, the inner light that it has, there's a definite yeah. sense that Elrond and Elrond feels it too, that this is this has been put here for a reason by the yeah, yeah. Il- Iluvatar, whatever his name is, or God or something um, to be discovered at this time and brought into the world. For sure. Yeah, definitely. For sure. Um, it's at this point, isn't it, that the, the prince comes back? What's the prince's name again? Uh, the dwarf prince. Durin. Durin comes back and announces that the men have all been saved. Yes, that's right. So it worked. Apparently the spell worked. The mountains, yeah, the mountains listened. They were like, God, that's a nice song. Let's give these guys back. Yeah. So yeah, they were all saved. And then he's very angry with his dad because his dad shut everything down. And um, he's very angry. But then Elrond gives him some advice or makes a comment about how he would. Uh, he used to feel very judged by his dad, and he would wonder whether his dad would be proud of him or not. And mm-hmm. then he realized that he would actually take either thing. Like he would, he would 
take either judgment just for an opportunity to have a conversation with him, which was a really touching moment. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, we're seeing two different types of father here. And uh, yeah, the absent father trope is a big part of this, especially with the kings. The king is strongly associated yeah. with, especially the king of comedy. I noticed one time, because I had a dream all about this in my own life, so I figured it all out. <laughs> but um, yeah. yeah, there's the present father in the form of um, Durin, or um, who was the other present father? I forget. Um, Adar, who's Adar, present, who's yeah, present the with other his one. children. But then yeah. there are other parents who are missing or are. Yeah. Or are. Like, You've also it, got the king. Yeah. Is like, present with his with the queen regent. That's right. Um, Hallbrand is an absent father because he's the king and father yes. of his people. And then yeah, we also right. had a hint of the absent father in the Lenny Henry character in Sadok Burroughs because he was. Because he's just an empty character <laughs> well he is the father of his people but they also leave people behind and so he's an about he's abandoned some of his children too you see that was echoed <laughs> yeah you know yeah yeah that's right so yeah it's all it's all part of the same trope of the absent father and the present father being compared and For i want sure. i want to write a big blog post about it actually i just haven't got around to it yet yeah you should do you still have a blog no i'm going to do the blog for the pod of the rings i'm going to put it on the oh thing. right okay yeah oh good okay um, it was very touching. The elf, not the elf, sorry, Derwin, the dwarf prince, was very touched. Um, and he goes off and apologizes to his dad and asks for forgiveness for his pride and his stubbornness and everything else. Um, and then the king tells him a story about how that the legend has it that the uh, that when a king dies and the new king is is crowned, he gets all of the wisdom from all the old kings is poured into him. Um, yeah, very very nice. Um, yeah, but yeah. I want, yeah. I mean, I thought that scene was absolutely fantastic. I, it's um, I did. You, <laughs> I was strongly reminded of the viewing screen on the Starship Enterprise when Duran mm. was looking out at the city. Right, you know the way. So, in fact, it's really, it's actually very similar. You know, like yeah. when they look out of the viewing screen on the Enterprise, they see space and stars. <laughs> and yeah. when Duran sits on his chair there, his captain's chair, and looks through his viewing window, <laughs> he's got this marvelous viewing window where through which he can see um, Casa the whole city. And yeah. all the little lights are like the stars of space. And so I wonder if they picked that up from Star Trek but to convey the space, the spatial Maybe. dimensions of the place, you know. And I noticed it wasn't just in this scene. There are other scenes where they use window frames and framing to, yes. to be either bring you into a tight space or to open you up into more expansive yeah. space. I noticed that too, that they love they love framing their shots like that. Yeah, yeah. So it's interesting. It, it was a very cool scene, yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Um I guess the last part of that is where they talk about um whether he is intuitive, he's got whether his intuition tells him that there's something not quite right with Elrond and the architect and what's happening is there's something else going on and um he's going to go off to Lindor to try to find out what's happening. Yeah. Lindon, um, sorry, not Lindor, Lindon. In pa in passing, um yeah. The other absent father was Elrond's father who's up in the stars. But anyway, back oh, to that's the, right. Back to what you immediately said there. Um yeah, the other element of the scene where Elrond was handed the baby Mithril and naming yeah. the baby from Durin. Remember that I remember how 
when uh, Muriel holds the baby in her hands, it's the weight of responsibility of being the regent of Numenor that yes. she bears it, in yeah. her decision making. And I felt that a huge responsibility was being placed onto Elrond's shoulders. Oh, maybe. And that he doesn't yet realize he's made this vow to Durin now, yeah. a vow of secrecy. And he's been given this thing. And he and I think we're being set up for a conflict with Elrond and Durin. Oh, definitely. There's going to be problems. And well, I... there's something that this new ore that they've discovered, there's definitely something about it that could lead to, I don't know whether it's potentially dangerous or maybe it has the same properties um, as the things that Sauron makes, where it kind of draws people in. And like well, you saw how Elrond was drawn in by, by the piece of ore hmm. that he was handed, he was almost transfixed on it. That's so maybe right. there's something there. He swore into secrecy now. He said that whatever Derwin tells him will will die in his ears. But yeah. um, can that possibly be something that he honours? That's the thing. You see, you know? in, in the future, we know that Mithril is what the elves have. They have special nigh, uh, daggers. I think uh, Frodo's yeah. dagger, Sting, is it Mithril? No, it's his armour is made of Mithril. Yes, that's so right. We know that Mithril oh, this has... this is a, them discovering it. Discovering okay, Mithril, yeah. Very good. Yeah, yes. that, I, uh, I thought it was so cool how they how they wove it all together with the naming of the babies and, and the yeah. dreams and the prophecies and the portents and the Laird symbols. Uh, it is good. Yeah, not so much to laugh at, unfortunately, in this episode. There were a few uh yeah <laughs> a, few a couple of moments i mean i don't know how we're going to continue to get comedy out of this if they continue to up the game of the show it's going to be uh, harder oh. and harder to do well we'll just pour scorn on it anyway uh yeah yeah <laughs> i guess no well it's but always... we won't need to rely on comedy you know what i mean it'll yeah. just become a more interesting show on its own yeah it is still delivering laughs though yeah um yeah the only other thing i wanted to say was i've listened to a lot of other podcasts this week i don't know if you've been listening to them and and it's very mixed stuff out there so there's people that love the show yeah die hard love it there are people yeah. that I've listened to one podcast where they were trying to be sympathetic, but there was a lot of scorn heaped on the show. Um, <laughs> yeah, picking yeah. up on some of the same things we did. And then there was another podcast that was really good um, on which they they were vigorously defending the show against the haters. Really? And, oh, yeah. Okay. Um, and so I just wanted to make it clear, hopefully, to our listeners that we aren't haters yeah, we're right? not. We're definitely not, not. I love it. I, I fucking love it. I think it's great. I love it too. <laughs> we're not gratuitously pouring scorn on the show, the actors, the writers. No. I know that we've said things like the script was lame in places and the script yeah, was letting the show down. We're, we're just poking fun at it. It's just, it's, a fin I mean, it's affectionate fun. We're poking fun. And of course, when we say things like the script didn't quite work there, obviously we're speaking from our perspective. And if the script works for someone yeah. else, then that's great that they love it. And Oh, I know. Right? I had this awkward moment with my boss because she said that she loved like the Harfoots and the little jokes that they made and stuff. And I was like, oh, fuck, this is so awkward. You better not listen to my podcast. <laughs> the other thing I want to say is I know we've reached the end of the show and we all have to go. But the thing is that the Harfoots are one of the most misunderstood parts of the show. Yeah, I listened to those other podcasts. I realized that people are having a hard time. Even people that like the show had a hard time integrating the the, the apparent callousness of the Harfoots. Yes. And, okay. And so remember I commented that um the Harfits are like animals, basically. Yeah, We're, yeah, yeah. This is the thing. And what, what hasn't quite gotten across successfully about the Harfits is that they they are not supposed this is a fantasy world. They're not supposed to be thought of as humans. Yeah, that's they right. They aren't human and they aren't even hobbits yet. They're prototypical yeah. creatures that 
live like animals they're best thought of as like little moles or little creatures living in the earth yeah, like, okay. or migratory birds or migratory yeah. you know when salmon are swimming upstream they don't stop to help each other get up the rapids they just go because that's how the species yeah, works that's true but they also don't have the same social structures and i think that that's why it doesn't really work that's why that 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 approach doesn't really work because salmon don't have family units and friends and they don't all get together to talk about the salmon that have died. You know what I mean? That's the See, difference. That there is, you're right. There is a difference. And this is where they haven't quite nailed it. I get what they're trying to yeah. do with the Harfoots, but they haven't quite nailed it because they're too human looking. Yes, it's like that's whenever right. you like what I liked about episode four was that the elves started to look more elvy to me the dwarfs really look very dwarfy the yeah. orcs really look orky yeah yeah you know, they definitely they, did you know it's been a problem from the beginning where the elves just looked a little bit too human but now that we start to see them a bit more we're getting to, they're starting to look yeah. our mind can sort of start to see them as different but with the harfoots yeah. it was too difficult they didn't distinguish them enough and they've built in human characteristics like like family units, it's like the, remorse for the people that have been left behind. Like if yeah. they were like salmon, they wouldn't feel remorse. The people that were left behind wouldn't mean anything to them. They I, wouldn't be remembered. It's odd, but that's the thing you see. It's a it's not a human morality, strictly speaking. But you're yeah. right. You're right. They're not they're not quite getting that across. And people are confused yeah. about it. Even fans of the show are don't quite peg it. You know what I mean? They don't understand so, what it is. Yes. Maybe this is just them halfway. You know, they've got the remorse bit, but they haven't got the bit where they feel responsible for, yeah. <laughs> for leaving them behind. <laughs> they have well, remorse, but not regret. Well, that's the odd thing. The funny <laughs> thing about animals is that animals can feel remorse. Like if you are yeah. not remorse, but they can feel loss. So you could see, for instance, one of my great favorite examples of this is you could see a, a video of a, a mother polar bear mourning or crying or or you know making yeah. a noise when one of her children cubs dies yeah but it's also true that bears will go back a, a male bear will go back and eat their young if they're hungry <laughs> so yeah. that's the weird yeah. thing about the animal world the animal world is different from the human world it's very mixed there are there are emotions okay. there are feelings there are even thoughts yeah okay, with some animals okay. like dogs and cats but but For they're sure. still animals. And so we yeah, need to, the okay. heart, I hope the showrunners can sort of get us across this bridge with the Harfoots and help us to I... really see them properly. Maybe they will. Maybe I they hope will. so. I hope so. They just need to give them better writers. Just give them better writers they for need, season two. That's need, what I say. You're right. They need a better, they need a more distinctive language. It's missing. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Um, I really enjoyed that episode. I loved it. I thought it was really, really good. Um, I'm gonna go back. I want to watch it another time. Um, I really enjoyed it. It was brilliant. I what was I... your favorite moment? Oh God, I had it picked out. So first of all, there's the moment with Adar when he is killing his, he's putting his yeah. child orc out of its misery. Um, yeah. Um, but I guess there's the three linked moments that we see in the show when Muriel's holding the baby. So Muriel stream. Yeah how that all connects then we saw that again a shadow version of that with adar and his child and then we saw yeah. the exact same thing repeated later with elrond and the thing so those three scenes can the way they connect are my favorite scenes and they're also extremely magical when elrond holds the mithril For sure 
Yeah, it was really, it was a really great moment. Mm. I think Elrond was probably one of my highlights this week. Like, I'm really starting that character's really starting to grow on me now. I've got a little bit of an Elrond crush. Yeah, um, I think he's a great, he's a great character. So yeah, that works. That works. I've got a little bit of a Galadriel crush. So uh... <laughs> <laughs> terrible. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> I haven't said much about Galadriel, but I want to talk more about her. But I think um, another episode will see more of Galadriel and help yeah. us to. We'll really get into for that sure. character. Yeah. Yeah, she's definitely growing on me for sure. Mm-hmm. She's really good. Cool. Awesome. Thanks so much for listening if you're listening. Yep. Have a and great night. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Thanks for joining Jamie and Simon on Pod of the Rings. Please like and subscribe, lest you miss your weekly ration of spuds. Share with your friends and give us a five-star rating. Help us raise an army. That would really blow our petals off. Until next time, as they say in the caverns of Khazad-dûm, If this mountain's a-rockin', don't come a-knockin'.